as the recent bullying controversy involving the UK Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab with civil servants resonate with local politicians and officials. With the deadline for completing local skills improvement plans approaching fast, how important are they to the future of local economic development in England? And with four new unitary local authorities that launched in April 2023, how should places undergoing local government reorganisation approach local economic development? I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm David Marlowe. Join us as we look back at some of the key issues and events that caught our eyes in LED and placemaking during April. I mean, Mike, uh, looking at those provocations or speaking them, we've set up possibly the most eclectic set of issues (laughs) that we've dealt with yet in a LED confidential episode. I mean, what do you make of the Raab saga and why, why did you want us to talk about it today? So when we first started talking about launching LED Confidential, one of our aims was to recreate the sort of discussions that happen at the fringes and bars of economic development conferences. Our our listeners who were who were no, no doubt schooled in the ways of the fringes and bars of economic development conferences will know what we're talking about when we say that. The relationship between elected leaders and officials is definitely a staple of those kind of chats that you have in those places. Uh, we might not be talking about bullying specifically, but the relationship dynamics of these two groups is critical to decision-making at any level, whether it's national or local. Um, so, David, I, I kind of wanted to to put it to you first. You're an experienced official. You were a CEO within local government. You were the CEO of an executive agency of government. You're a veteran of that interface between officialdom and elected officials. Um, What does a good working relationship look like and what can go wrong? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting that you actually mentioned the fringes and bars of conferences, because I mean, I was actually thinking about that. and, And obviously, the critical moments of leader, chief executive or politician, official relationships are not in the fringes and bars of LED conferences, but more's the pity, that, David. More's the pity. <laughs> but, but I mean, those episodes are actually quite important. And strangely enough, I think one of the litmus tests of a good relationship is that the politician and his or her official, if we can make it possessive in that way, actually feel comfortable speaking to each other. You know, at those moments in these sort of relaxed moments in a a conference because I mean it does seem to me that the characteristics of comfort in those moments does transpose to some of the important qualities of a really good political executive relationship. So trust, mutual respect, actually honesty some sort of sense of shared agendas, shared values, intentions, and so on. Um, those are all components of things that I've particularly valued working with political leaders and, and political colleagues, I guess, uh, throughout my 
career, um, but they are not the be-all and end-all. I think you're right. I don't think we should particularly focus on bullying. Um, you asked what could go wrong, and I suppose <laughs> that no, those are the difficult ones. Um, let me just say one or two things about what can go right. I mean, I think one of the first things is Absolutely. When you make mistakes or when thing go when things go wrong, you should be the one to inform your political leader or you know, the relevant members of your local authority. Those you know, those moments are always going to happen, and it's really important that they hear it from you and not from a third party, because that will completely twist the narrative. So if you find out first, confront it quickly. But I think, you know, the other things are be can do. Delivery is absolutely fundamental. And I mean, I hate to get into cliches, but your people talk a lot about a good relationship being about talking truth unto power. But and, and, you know, that's a cliche, and it is, of course, to some extent true. But so many of the complexities of our relationships with politicians are there are many truths. You know, so your truth isn't the absolute truth, and you've got to be humble enough to uh, accept that. Things that have really gone wrong, partly when there is massive role ambiguity. I know one of the times that I was chief executive I mean, it's fairly well known that my political master also fancied a go at being chief executive, and that made it a very difficult relationship, and ultimately I left. But also, they're, they're, you're, you're right about role rigidity. Actually, the idea that there's an absolute split between the roles of the chief executive and the leader um, really doesn't hold anymore. You know, we are at some stage political with a small p. I wonder if David just quit. So, one of the things that f may, may, maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, but something that feels like it's a bit new on the horizon is the role of political advisors within a local government context. So, we're used to hearing about the SPADs, special advisors, as kind of go betweens within central government departments. But increasingly, you do see a kind of version of that role playing out within local, especially within mayoral combined authorities. You do see essentially political appointees to technical roles. In effect, that's what they are. Is that something new under the sun? And when you talked about that kind of you know, getting that trust, can they be both a positive in that, in helping to build trust as a sort of go-between, or, or is it more complex than that? I think it is fairly complex. I mean, they're not absolutely new. I certainly did have a, a raft of political advisors in various roles throughout my career, so they're not entirely new. And, and they tend to be more, I think, on the comms and political management with the small P and large P side than on the execution side, in my experience. Maybe that is changing. I mean, it certainly does change when, for example, a mayor or a leader fancies a, a bash at being the chief exec or the director of development. It's really difficult. I mean, what was your experience of of looking at it from the outside when you were, at, for example, the Chambers of Commerce? I, I think... 
within a central government context, the reality is there aren't that there aren't so many ministers numerically. So if you want to interface with power, then on a practical level, you are you you do have to interface with the court rather than the individual very often. And that sounds awful when you put it like that. It sounds like you know it's kind of all like a game. But actually, on a practical level, you know, there is a numer- there are numerical constraints on how much outreach with the outside world uh, an elected politician can do if there's only a small number of them. So I think political advisors, those who work in their private office, whether they're civil servants or whether they are political appointees, play a useful role there um, for both sides, actually. Um, they're clearly very useful to the, those they work for. Um, because they have to manage their time effectively, but they're also very useful as well for the outside world, as I say, of, of, of being a kind of you know functioning administration around someone, and 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 that can be useful. I, I suppose you know th- there are good, there's good and bad uh, in that, and you can see definitely how tensions can arise, and and they're often down to personality, you know, type clashes rather than. Uh, than anything else, but David, I want just you know before we move on, there's another couple of just aspects to this. I'd, it'd be great to get your view on. One of them, I guess, is you know that going back to that point about the tension between accountability and expertise. So we know within local economic development, there are quite a few areas where there is a, a kind of there's a technical side to a discussion and there is a political side to a discussion planning and development control decisions would be a really good example of that where you have a political decision making process but you also have technical inputs to it uh, for those people you know within our, our listenership who find themselves in one of those positions whether they are on the elected side dealing with uh, expert inputs or indeed on the other side um of offering their technical advice what what's your advice to either of those groups in kind of managing those two differing languages and priorities how can they best work productively together I think at the end of the day, it actually comes down to chemistry. I mean, you are entirely right. We are in an age where more so than ever before, possibly partly because of social media, um, everyone's either an expert or doesn't believe in experts. And I mean, just very anecdotally, for example, you know, the idea that, um, you know, some patients now have of Googling their condition before they go and see the doctor and telling them, telling the doctor what their diagnosis is. I think we do often find that in LED and placemaking. Yeah, and particularly if you do have a council of 50 members or whatever, many of whom are computer literate, you will be suddenly faced with 25 different experts in you know, economic growth or infrastructure delivery or whatever. So, I mean, ultimately, I would have to say it does come down to chemistry, credibility. You know, it does actually come back to the sorts of ambiance you have on the fringe of conferences and in the bars. But speaking with authority, speaking with a can-do, this-is-how-we-move-forward type of attitude you know, but it is genuinely challenging. And you know, as I say, I mean, ev- either everyone's an expert or everyone thinks we don't want experts. So uh, 
it it does seem to me that does seem to me to have been more acute than hitherto. Uh, we could talk about this for the whole half hour, but I, I was I was going to say for, for anyone on the call who is tempted to Google some expertise before um, they have an important meeting, just remember that they can also listen to back episodes of LED Confidential, where where, where they will find lots of insight and expertise that they can draw on. So let let let's let's point them in the right direction, David, and, and hope that they uh, listen to some back episodes. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's now move on to a play a place where I know you absolutely do have proven expertise and that's the local skills improvement plan process i mean i know you've been integrally involved in at least one if not more of them you know, tell us um why you think they are important for the future of led in the uk yeah i i i i do i do think that local skills improvement plans are genuinely fascinating they're fascinating partly because they're an import. So the local skills improvement plan is very much a German concept. It's also live in some Scandinavian countries. And what what I find fascinating is that when you look at the philosophy that underpins the local skills improvement plan as it operates in Germany and, say, some other countries, those are quite different contexts for local economic development. So seeing that transplanted to an English context, you can see how that context is having to slightly move around a little bit to accommodate it. And I think that's why I think it's important to the future of economic development. It's genuinely a different way of doing things and it's being um, it, it, it's live at the moment. So what what is an LSIP? An LSIP is, um, as it sounds, a, um, an improvement plan for skills. But it, it, the way that, that it's put together is as a strategic review process that's led by uh, an employer representative body or in the jargon of an ERB. And ERBs are designated by government um, to perform that role. They're typically, not always, but typically chambers of commerce. uh, The Federation of Small Businesses um, also perform that role in a few different places in the country, uh, such as uh, Cornwall and parts of the East Midlands, um, and there are also one or two trade associations that pick up that role in parts of the country. Um, but you have a, a business network and a, an employer a membership group, and they lead the process. Uh, and essentially, the easiest way I can describe it is it's a bit of a mediated, it's a mediated conversation um, between employers on the one hand and the provider community on the other. So colleges, primarily FE colleges, but schools, uh, private training providers on one side, employers on the other. And the essence of the LSIP is that the employer representative body is tasked with understanding what employers want in terms that matter to them and that that make sense in terms of the way they think about skills um, and labor requirements. And then those need to be translated into the sorts of outputs and budget changes and you know, updates to frameworks that make sense to the provider community, to the education community. So it's a mediated conversation. And you can see why such a thing works quite well in Germany, where you have collective bargaining and you have a kind of version of the LSIP that operates in different spheres of life. So it is very much of a piece with German economic development. But the seed has been planted now 
um, in England. So it's really fascinating to watch it uh, grow. Um, that's that's my opener, David, on on improvement plans. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you that I think they are a great starting point, and um, we'll have to see where they go, how they develop, how much traction they actually do have, uh, both on the demand and the supply side. I mean, I haven't really been integrally involved in them to date. I mean, it does. Well, let's put it this way. I'm quite interested in a number of the features. I mean, firstly, just just the concept of employer representative bodies owning and mediating the conversation, if I could call it that, on behalf of some sort of commission or designation from government. I, I understand that in the combined authority areas, that's likely to move over to a mayoral function. Am I right in that? And what do you see in, as the pros and cons of that? I'm not sure about how it's likely to evolve in that direction. I mean, of course, within if you look across the mayoral combined authorities at the moment, in most cases, the employment representative bodies are chambers of commerce. Um as for the relationship between combined authorities and chambers of commerce in under any kind of reform, I'm not too sure about that. But the employer-led aspect is the key thing here. Um, and I, and I, working on an LSIP, you really get a sense of there being there needing to be a mediator. I think that's that's something that's really that I've taken away from it. That actually the way that employers think about their skills requirements is very different from how colleges, schools think about their obligations. So if you think, if you're an employer, you tend to think on the whole about your specific needs, potentially the needs of your sector more broadly. Um, but you're, you're thinking about, you know, I need a person who can do this at this point in time. But if you're a provider, you've got to have a business model that works for cohorts of people. So that's why then that's where the market failure creeps in right there. It's that actually kind of what can be supplied economically and what typically businesses need um, as part of their skills forward planning. Yet there is a bit of a mismatch there. So having a mediated conversation in which you have an honest broker who understands an employer need um, because they they're of that world, and but also are kind of steeped enough in and, and expert enough in public policy implementation that they can also talk that language is really critical. So as I say, in most cases, that's going to be a chamber of commerce um, because it's there aren't that many other bodies really that fulfil that role at that level of geography. Which and LSIPs are typically sort of at a LEP level of geography. They're slightly different in some places, but you know, that that's the kind of the geography that they're done on. Um so the mediating role is an important one. It's actually a really difficult one, requires a lot of expertise and it requires a lot of credibility on both sides. So I think it would be quite difficult for for you know for it, a process like that to be, you know, outside of an employer body, put it that way. 
Well, look, I mean, I think it's really interesting. As, as you said, um, or as we said at the beginning, we're reaching the time for submission and then no doubt government will make decisions. And there is, I think, a local skills improvement fund that will no doubt be dished out to, um, various, uh, uh, of the plans. Um, I do think it's something that we should maybe look at in one of our thematic episodes and, and, uh, look at in greater detail. And I think it is it is really interesting. And as I said, a, a great starting point for moving labour market development and business productivity growth on the employment and skills side forward. So, you know, let, let's, uh, let's sort of leave it there for now and move on to our last provocation. I mean, you and I were privileged, I think, to do a lot of work with Somerset Council as it approached unitary status on uh, April the 1st, 2023, looking particularly at Somerset Economic Futures. And of course, it was joined uh, on, uh, well, in April by North Yorkshire and two Cumbrian, I think it's Cumberland and Westmoreland and Furness as new unitaries. Um, what are your reflections on how local government reorganisation can propel, refresh, motivate new approaches to LED and placemaking? I, I definitely think that unitarisation is a definitely a great opportunity for a sort of you know, a clean slate, um, you know, wiping the slate clean, having, um, you know, really going back to first principles about what an area needs, uh, how it can develop economically. It's a good opportunity to do that. Um, but the challenge with it is, you know, as you can see um, in any unitarization process, is that there is a before and an after and a during with unitarization. And the, the sort of the big question is how do you structure an economic development strategy review? Does it come before the unitarization? Does it come after? Is it a process that spans both sides of that? And I think certainly one of the things that I took away from the work that we did in Somerset was that there's a lot of value actually in doing some groundwork before the unitary authority is launched. It's a great opportunity as people are thinking ahead to the future, even if that's you know mostly about administrative reform, it's still an opportunity to galvanize communities to think about their own futures. And it's a great hook for doing that. You know, when when you walk into a community venue and people say, Well, why are we talking about this now? We're talking about it now because you know, we've got a lot of change on the horizon. We've got you know, potentially new funding and powers that might come with that reorganization so now is the time to think about what we want to get out of that process so yeah it's it's for me it's about how do you align that process of refreshing your economic thinking with the before the during and the after of the unitization process and making it all fit together that's the that's the tricky bit in all of this I think the other thing that I particularly took out of the Somerset experience, and I assume it might be similar in other areas of local government reorganisation, is what I think is actually quite a big tension, A, between the desire for there to be a seamless transition and the 
opportunity for some sort of disruptive challenge and change to economic priorities, trajectories, and so on. And then I think, secondly, the whole issue of doing it alongside all the other local government services and all the budgetary difficulties and challenges facing local authorities at the moment. So, you know, I think it is, again, an incredibly challenging thing to do. Quite often, some of the main role players don't know whether they are part of the future or not. So that also is a a further tension. But what I did find really engaging about the work we did in Somerset was that they did take the opportunity in advance of unitarization to actually have an independent look and an independently mediated deliberation about the future of the county's economy and its economic geographies. And I think every place, whether you're reorganizing or not, needs to do that and find the space to do that periodically and um you know in 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 a way that enables honest open discussion which almost takes us back to the initial provocation but but yeah i mean what did you make of those those tensions a the budget tension and b the seamless disruptive change tension what one of the good things about shaking things up a little bit with yeah, shaking things up administratively is that it, again it does provide an opportunity to reach out to people and communities that you, you haven't traditionally engaged with. And I think one of, one of the things that I really enjoyed about that um, work with Somerset was the way that they were able to engage with um, young people in you know f- from different backgrounds in different places and really engage them and, and challenge you know be willing to have their assum- assumptions challenged about what they wanted to see from the county so i thought you know any, any of these big disruptive change moments gives you an opportunity to do that and and when you do it it's a really valuable thing uh, to do but in terms of the tension between kind of you know steady as she goes versus now you know let let's let's tear it all down and start again sort of thing i you know i i think in in moments of change like that you do give the upper hand to to people and, and voices who are on the side of change i think it's natural that that should be the case because you're in a change process you're in you know i think that's actually one of the advantages of doing it is that you you are giving power to to the to the change makers in any change process. So I, I think that that's, that that's my kind of sort of way of fudging the answer, <laughs> answer I suppose. No, I, I think on a practical level, it goes down to the quality of the conversation that you're having and, you know, not straying too far from best practice in the way that you consult community. So making sure you don't just speak to the usual, usual suspects. If you don't, if you reach beyond the usual suspects, very often what you find is you speak to people who want change. You know, I think that's something that we took away from that, um, which is why everyone should do more of it. I think. Yeah. A reorganization or not have those type of conversations. As I say, it does sort of take us full circle to where we started from, uh, uh, the political executive interface, but um, actually 
In fact, all, all three of our things are, are looking at interface issues, aren't they? Because it's not as simple as political executive. It is about, you know, employers, providers, and, and yeah, getting these partnership structures right and building the sort of enduring trust and honesty and openness that allows them to uh, get through the challenges of, of contemporary uh, UK is, is really important. Let's leave it for there. As ever, April's been a, a busy month, but uh, May will be even more exciting with local elections and uh, the aftermath of that. I'm David Marlowe, and you can get in touch with me, thirdlifeeconomics.co.uk. And I'm Mike Spicer, and you can find me through my website, which is policydepartment.com. <laughs> <laughs>